Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there's power in it, that we can know that as we're opening it up, that you have a plan to speak to us, that we can uh, trust that the words that you've written down for us still have things to say to us. And we pray tonight that we would uh, just have open ears and open hearts that are willing to hear, willing to listen and to learn and to grow. So please uh, have your way with us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So on Wednesday nights, we find ourselves going through the Bible in a year. We're doing a book at a a week in overview fashion, which brings us tonight to the book of Chronicles, or the book of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Um, Just like 1st and 2nd Samuel, just like 1st and 2nd Kings, these uh, were originally one book when they were written in Hebrew. But when they were translated into Greek, you guys have heard me say this, but some of you might just still think it's interesting, because I still think it's really interesting. The vowels in Hebrew are underneath the consonants, and the vowels in Greek are beside the consonants, just like in English. So when all the vowels go beside, all of a sudden it takes twice as much space to write it out. So they translated the Bible into Greek and said, this is too long to fit on a scroll. So what do we do? Well, we'll split it into two books. That way we can carry it around on two scrolls. So you had the book of Chronicles turned into the book of First and Second Chronicles. And you know, we said last week that, uh, that the book of First and Second Kings and the book of First and Second Chronicles have really parallel narratives. They're telling a very similar story, but they're written at different times, and they're written to different people at different seasons of life, and, that, and that's an important context for us to keep in mind as we're looking specifically at Chronicles for tonight. So most people uh, would say that the book of First and Second Chronicles, or the books, depending on however you want to phrase it, are probably written by either Ezra or Nehemiah. And we'll actually get to the books that each of those guys wrote over the next two weeks. But Ezra and Nehemiah came back, if you remember, just like we've been talking about on Sundays, the whole nation of Judah was carried away captive by the nation of Babylon. Well, the Lord had prophesied that 70 years from that day that they would be uh, freed to go back. And so they were freed to go back. But you got to remember, these people have now been away from their homeland for 70 years. So who are we at this point? You know, if, if we've lost every sense of, of what it means culturally to be a Jewish person, what, what exactly are we? Even down to basic things like, where am I from? Where do I live? Which piece of property is mine? You know, whose family am I connected to? Especially if that pertains to, in this culture, who can you marry? Things like that. So the book of First and Second Chronicles are written to people who are trying to find their identity. And that's really helpful for us to keep in mind as we're looking at it because in a greater sense, we're all trying to find our identity. We can look at this world and say, you know, this isn't quite home. This isn't quite right. There's, there's way too many problems for this to be all there is. So there's something else out there. I'm looking for an identity. I'm trying to find exactly who I am because I know I'm something, but I don't exactly know what. And so the first book of First and Second Chronicles um, is written with specific application to the Jewish people who are returning to the city of Jerusalem. But it carries an immense amount of application to those of us who are still alive today. So we said Ezra probably wrote it. He's writing to these returning captives. With that, he's trying to help them ground themselves. And so we're going to actually be able to do some high-speed skimming through the first chunk. The first nine chapters of the book of First Chronicles are just genealogies. And it's Ezra saying, okay, uh, starting from Adam, you know, let's just remind us who we are. Well, we're the children of 
Israel, but really we're the children of Abraham, really we're the children of Adam, really we are the people God created. So let's start with Adam, okay? So here's Adam, first human being. Here's how the line breaks down from his genealogy to us. Here's how it comes to Abraham, okay? Well, God made the promise to Abraham that he'd make a nation from him. Abraham's son Isaac, God made a promise to Isaac that he'd make a nation through him. Isaac's son Jacob, God made a promise to Jacob that he'd make a nation through him. And then Jacob's 12 sons, and the Lord promised to establish them collectively as the nation of Israel. And the first nine chapters give us this genealogy of, okay, so the 12 sons break down roughly in these family groups. And uh, if you're reading it, if you're reading the through the Bible in a year plan, which you'll get to, you'll get to this passage in, I think, a little over a month. Um, it's, it's a hard read. It really is. It's uh, confusing at times um, just because it's a lot of names back to back. It's also confusing a little bit because in Hebrew originally there's no word for grandfather or grandmother or grandson. So my dad is my father in Hebrew. My dad's dad is my father in Hebrew. And my dad's dad's dad is my father in Hebrew. So occasionally you cross-reference some of the genealogies here in First Chronicles with other genealogies in the scriptures, and you can say, wait a second, is there a discrepancy here? No. Um, but the author of whichever one is trying to just get down to the bottom of the genealogy faster. So he says, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and he's jumping six generations and hitting the main people. So it can be a little tricky to read, but that doesn't diminish its significance. Because it's still establishing for these people, here's your identity. You're part of the family of God. And so, yes, we may not look at it and find direct application necessarily in knowing that, you know, just that Ner was the father of Kish, and Kish was the father of Saul, and Saul was the father of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal, and the son of Jonathan was Meribbaal, and Meribbaal was the father of Micah. The sons of Micah were Pithon, Melech, Tereah, and Ahaz, and Ahaz became the father of Jehoiada, and Jehoiada became the father of Alameth, Asmaveth, and Zimri. And Zimri became the father of Moza, which is a kind of a great name. Somebody had to name a drink after that. But anyways, um, so you're not going to read that paragraph and, and don't, oh, don't try and over-extrapolate, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, don't try and say, well, if we take the first uh, letter from each of these and we, and we scramble them in reverse order, and then you take the third consonant out of each one of them, you can find this magic number. And then don't do that. The genealogies are written to help people find their identity and to help them understand that they're the children of God. And in the same way, we read the Scripture to help us understand that we are the children of God. And the Scriptures are not written to entertain us. The scriptures are written to make us holy and to let us know who we are. And so, yes, not every part of the scripture is designed to be fun reading. Scripture was not given to us in sound bites or clickbait or anything like that. Scripture is given to us as the word of God, and God breathed it, and he holds it up as extremely valuable, and so he expects us to take it seriously. So, but with that, we can admit the honesty that the first nine chapters of of 1 Chronicles are pretty hard read. Um, First Chronicles chapter 10, we start getting the reign of David. And we're going to get the reign of David all the way through the end of First Chronicles. Do you guys like this pace? I like this pace. So we get 19 chapters of the reign of David. And along the way, the author, Ezra or Nehemiah, will occasionally keep dropping in these little pieces of genealogy. Like David appointed this person. Oh, by the way, he had these kids and these kids and these kids. And David appointed this person over this position and he had these kids. And what, what the author is doing 
is he's, you got to remember, again, he's helping these people remember their identity. Okay, so if you come back and have no unawareness of who you're from or your family line, or you don't need, you know, you don't, you're trying to figure out, do I belong somewhere? Where, where do I anchor myself? There's, he's given these names, and you can say, wait a second, I know that name. That, that's my line, right? And so he's, he's given us these bits and pieces, but he's also reminding them not just of, here's the straight-up facts, but here's the story of what God's been doing. And so he gives us the story of David's reign. David's reign has already been written about in First and Second Samuel, and we've covered that the last couple of weeks, so we're not going to go over it tonight necessarily, but the, you know, if this is Ezra, Ezra's trying to remind the people, hey, here's the facts, right? Here's the straight up facts. If you need the genealogies, that's great. Here's the story. And God is always interested in being very factual, but he's also always interested in the story that he's telling. And so here's the story of how God has moved in our past. And let's not forget that God has done amazing things in our past. We look backwards for the sake of looking forwards. We look back and remember what God has done so that we can look forward to what God is going to do. So we get the reign of David. And as Ezra's writing this, um, he gives us a very, a very positive take on the reign of David. He doesn't try and hide David's sin. He doesn't try and make David out to be perfect. But he does, kind of, he does give emphasis to the better parts of David's life because he wants these people to remember, watch the blessing of God as it came down upon people who were serving the Lord. And so we don't read about David's affair with Bathsheba. He kind of, you know, references it in a way that you can tell where he's talking about it, but he doesn't, he doesn't go into detail there. He's, re- he's talking about, hey, David served the Lord and did this. David was serving the Lord like this. David was trying to serve the Lord, kind of messed it up here, but then came back and served the Lord, and the Lord blessed it. David made a mistake, but the Lord, but he repented. And so this author is trying to give us this awareness. Okay, remember, here's the facts about who God is, but here's the story of how God has worked. So let's not forget our identity. And so that's really the whole book of First Chronicles. Second Chronicles opens up, the first nine chapters are the reign of Solomon, David's son. And Solomon we covered last week. Solomon has an amazing start to his reign and then really just lets it go. He, he's given immense opportunity and chooses to waste it all because he's willing to sort of just cut out bits and pieces here and there of what the Word of God said. The Word of God said, don't multiply wives. He said, well, that part doesn't really apply. The Word of God, the Word of God said, don't put your emphasis on being rich. Solomon said, well, that doesn't really matter. The Lord said, don't buy horses from Egypt. Solomon said, well, that doesn't matter. That's just, surely the Lord doesn't actually, that's just economics, right? The Lord doesn't care about economics. The Lord cares about spiritual stuff. No, no, no. Solomon carves out pieces of the Word of God from having relevance in his life, and he winds up totally walking away from the Lord. And so the Lord deals with that because the Lord always deals with sin. And in chapter 10, Solomon's son Rehoboam begins to reign. And under Rehoboam, the kingdom is divided. And we talked about last week, but it's always confusing, so we always talk about it, and that's okay. The nation of Israel geographically, uh, you know, it's about the size of New Jersey, and it's shaped a little bit like New Jersey. So if you're ever trying to picture it, New Jersey's not a bad place to start. All right, well, under Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. And they had been regionally broken up into 12 tribes because there's the 12 sons of Jacob. But the 10 northern tribes split off and became known as the nation of Israel. The lower two tribes stayed where they were and became known as the nation of Judah. And so from this point, from the division of Rehoboam, really until they're both carried away captive, you'll read about the nation of Judah or the nation of Israel. And they're two separate entities at that point. 
And Chronicles, if you remember, in Jeremiah, where I've been on Sundays, the Lord has been speaking through Jeremiah to the people in the nation of Judah, because the nation of Israel had already been carried away captive by the Assyrian Empire. And then the nation of Judah was eventually, about 150 years later, carried off by the Babylonian Empire. So this book is being written to the members of the tribe of Judah, or the nation of Judah, who are coming back to Jerusalem. And so the emphasis after Rehoboam's reign, after the kingdom splits, the emphasis for the rest of this book is the kings of Judah. It's not trying to, you know, the book of First and Second Kings goes back and forth. Here's the king of Judah, here's the king of Israel, here's the king of Judah, here's the king of Israel, which gets really fun when they start having the same name side by side. It's like super exciting. But, but we're going to get a list now for the rest of the book of Second Chronicles of the kings of Judah. And Judah, and it's interesting, the nation of Israel never had a godly king once they split the nation of Israel had one bad king after another, and they were ranked by bad, more bad, and really bad. But the nation of Judah is going to have a bigger mix. It's going to be the good, the kind of good, the okay, the bad, the really bad, and the really, really bad. But Ezra, as he's writing this book, never shows us a perfect king. He never, and, and this is a fascinating thing about the scriptures. The scriptures never try and gloss over the details. They never try and minimize sin in any of the characters in the Bible. They never, they never give us the right to turn different characters in the Scripture into demigods or superheroes or whatever. They're all fallen. They're all sinners. And so, you know, as we're going through the Old Testament and looking at books of the Old Testament, we're trying to see, okay, where does the nature of Jesus Christ fit in? How do we look at the Old Testament to look forward to the New Testament? Well, as Ezra's writing this, he never gives us a perfect king. He, the nation of Israel, the nation, sorry, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel never had a perfect king. But there's prophecies about a king who's going to set everything right, a king who's going to establish his throne in righteousness. So none of these kings are that. None of these kings are, are perfect. So the book itself, just as it's giving us these descriptions, is pointing to the fact that there's got to be another king coming. There's got to be a king on his way. And that's really what, as we're looking at, okay, how do we see Jesus Christ portrayed through the book of First and Second Chronicles? We see it in the sin and in the fall of the people, of the kings, because they couldn't draw themselves up. They couldn't perfect themselves. And, and it's the story of our lives. We cannot perfect ourselves. We cannot make ourselves better human beings. A king, if we're gonna have a king reign over us in perfection, he's gonna have to come from somewhere better than where we're from. Right? So it's pointing to Jesus Christ coming from heaven to become a man. Coming from heaven to live the perfect life, to die, to pay the price for our sins, and then to rise again as our king. That's the whole lineage of the kings is going to be pointing to that. All right? So that's the big picture of Second Chronicles specifically, but First and Second Chronicles as a whole. So that's what we're looking at comprehensively. But as we get into these individual kings, we get some just amazing, uh, amazing pictures of different people and their walk with the Lord and, and the ways that the Lord wanted to work in their lives. And some of those who let the Lord do that, some of those who didn't. And so we're just going to look at a handful of the kings tonight. Um, but I think there's just a lot, a lot here for us to, to try and glean. So the first thing we're going to talk about tonight is Asa. And if you're looking to flip to somewhere, you can flip to Second Chronicles chapter 14 is where we'll sort of start things off 
as far as reading. Um, parenthetically, this isn't, I meant to put it in my notes, but forgot to. Um, we talked a couple times this year about if you're trying to remember certain things, sometimes a song is the best way to do it. And sometimes a stupid song is an even better way to do it. So if you want to look up, if you want to learn the books of the Bible, just type in like books of the Bible children's song on Google. Find a song, listen to it two or three times, and you will hate the rhythm, but you will know the books of the Bible in order. If you want to learn the kings of Judah, there is a video on YouTube that is stupid as all get out, but is highly effective. And if you want to learn them in order so that you can sort of track better in your mind where they all fit, Google the Bentley Brothers, Second Chronicles. It's about three minutes of your life. Watch it two or three times. It costs you 10 minutes, and you will have the kings of Judah stuck in your head. And that's still how I go through them. I can, I can get there. I just always have to start at the beginning, right? Rehoboam and Abijah and Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Joash and Messiah. And I can get there. So, I can, so, so if you, you want to learn the kings of Judah, look it up. Um, but we're going to start with Asa tonight. Asa is uh, the grandson of Rehoboam. And his grandfather was a wicked king. His father was a wicked king. And so he comes to the throne and it says, uh, Abijah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and his son Asa became king in his place. I'm starting at chapter 14. The land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. Asa, verse 2, did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. So we're getting, we get a synopsis at the beginning of each of these kings' reign. Uh, hey, this was a good guy, this was a bad guy. It's kind of the, the blanket statement. All right, so it opens up, tells us about the reign of Asa. Asa, did good and right in the sight of the Lord. And then it goes on, and we get a couple chapters of Asa, all right? And we just get the—we're going to read some highlights from his life. In chapter 14, verse 9, it says, Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them—that's the nation of Judah—with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Marisha, so Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha at Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Asa finds himself outnumbered going up against an army of a million men, which is a pretty sizable army. Um, that would still rank as one of the largest armies ever assembled, even by today's standards. And he goes out to war against them to defend his homeland. He says, Lord, we're trusting in you. And that's really all we have to lean on right now because we're outnumbered, we're outgunned, we're outmanned, we're outpositioned. So we're asking you to do something. And in verse 12, it says, So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and his army, and they carried away very much plunder. So Asa prays for the, to the Lord for deliverance, and the Lord shows up in a big way. He shatters an army of a million men. And that's a pretty strong descriptor in a book that doesn't exaggerate. The Bible never feels, the Bible never has to embellish the facts. So when the Lord says, I shattered the army of the Ethiopians, he means, I shattered the army of the Ethiopians. And, and then it goes on from there in chapter, kick over to chapter 15, so he, basically, they win the victory. They get all the plunder. They carry it all away. And then chapter 15, it says, Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said, Listen to me, Asa. 
and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you and you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Asa gets this benediction from the Lord saying, the Lord is with you if, you're, if you are seeking after him. And so Asa gets this huge promise from the Lord. I mean, think about the promise. God is with you. God is going to fight your battles. He's going to be on your side as long as you're seeking him. And so he says, be strong. Don't lose courage. There's reward in your work. And then verse 8, it says, Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy, which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet, spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the countries he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord. And then it, it goes on and gives us a whole list of the reforms under Asa. So Asa takes courage. He says, okay. And remember, his father, his grandfather, and for the second half of his life, his great-grandfather had all been wicked men. They'd all worshipped idols and built altars and to false gods all around the country. And so Asa says, you know what? We're going to go on a national campaign. We're going to remove and destroy every false idol. We're going to be a nation that seeks after the Lord. And it's this just killer time of reform and revival. And it'd be great to say that Asa died right then when everything was great and hunky-dory. But the scripture is not interested in giving us a sunny picture. It's interested in telling us the truth. And so in chapter 16, we get this, we won't necessarily read it, but basically the northern kingdom of Israel comes against Judah. And they're ready to try and reassemble the whole country into one nation. Um, almost like a whole, you know, big country, put a bunch of troops on the border and then say, we're going to help liberate you and make you part of our country again. You know, we're kind of familiar with that happening. Um, and so Asa comes up with this great plan. He says, I'm going to pay the kingdom that's north of Israel. So you have Judah, Israel, and the nation of Syria, or some of your Bibles might say Aram. And he goes and he pays the king of, of Syria and says, hey, you've got a treaty with this guy. Why don't you break that treaty and go fight against him? And then he'll leave me alone and you can get all the plunder from him that you want. And the interesting thing is it, it's a great military strategy. It works. Uh, the king of Syria comes and attacks Israel. The Israelite king leaves all the stuff that he was building in preparation against Judah, goes up north to fight. Asa goes and tears down all the cities and supply chains that the Israelite king was putting together, takes it all home to Judah. It's like he got out of a war. He got all kinds of extra plunder. It's pretty good stuff. And then, chapter 16, verse 7, at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa the king of Judah and said to him, because you've relied on the king of Aram, or the king of Syria, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim uh, an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So this prophet comes to Asa. He says, you know what? Well, back up. Asa has this plan. He's got this brilliant military strategy. He pulls it off flawlessly, and it works. And that's super important to understand. Asa has a plan, and it works. And then a prophet comes to him and says, you know what? God had a plan that was actually better than your plan. And so you, making things happen in your own strength, actually cut in front of God's plan. God wanted to actually let you conquer 
the king that you just formed an alliance with. And you just blew it, but you're happy because it worked. And, and we look at that and say, okay, so, so what's the principle? What are we learning? We're looking at the life of Asa. What can we glean? What can, as we're looking at the word of God, what does it have to say to us? Well, among other things, whether or not something works is a horrible justification for whether or not it's the right thing. Whether or not it's the right thing to do. The Lord is interested in the how as much as he is in the what. The Lord is not interested in making things work. The Lord is interested in us knowing him and having a relationship with him and responding to what he's telling us to do in obedience. He's not interested in us making life happen. He's not interested in us you know, pursuing our own goals or pushing our own ambitions in life. He is interested in doing things his way. And he had a plan for Asa, and Asa had a plan that didn't involve the Lord. Asa says, you know what? I think I've got this. I've got this killer strategy I read about in this book. We're going to go for it, and it works. And in Asa's mind, we succeeded, and in God's mind, they failed. So who was right? The Lord was right. Asa has this whole plan, but it doesn't work because the Lord doesn't view it as a victory. The Lord views it actually as a defeat. And Asa, unfortunately, doesn't do so well after that. He kind of walks back from some of what the Lord uh, really wanted him to do. And he kind of ends his life as just a sad man. But, but we're looking at the life of Asa, and we're saying, okay, what can we learn? We can learn that the Lord is looking, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who strongly serve him. So he doesn't say, Asa, this is the promise just for you, right? What's he say? He says, look, he's looking to strongly support those. Who does those include? Us. So if you are, if your heart is completely God's, then the Lord wants to strongly support you. And it might mean that he wants to strongly support you by implementing his plan, which is better and bigger and vastly different than your plan. So that's in, so, okay, look at Asa. Now, we're, we're moving around. We're going to hit a couple other kings before we run out of time. But... We jump to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah, uh, if you're looking for a chapter, you can flip to 29. We probably won't read anything directly out of 29, but flip there if it makes you feel better. Hezekiah, like, uh, like Asa, comes after uh, a wicked father. Uh, a father who actually says, close the doors of the house of the Lord. Okay, Hezekiah's father said, you know what? We are done serving the Lord as a nation. It is time for the priest to go home and it's time for the people to stop bringing offerings. And Hezekiah, the first day of the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. It says he repaired them. And then he starts digging through and cleaning out the temple. And then he starts going throughout all the land and they're clearing out all the idols. Hezekiah goes on a massive campaign of reform. He's going around everywhere trying to destroy as many idols as he can, and turn the hearts of the people to the Lord. And we see this super incredible chapter in chapter 30. You can't have a chapter in chapter 30. We see the super incredible chapter 30, where Hezekiah sent, verse 1, to all Israel and Judah, and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So 
well, verse 2. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month since they couldn't celebrate it at that time because the priests hadn't consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers and nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Thus the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation from Beersheba even to Dan. They should come to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. So what does this mean? Well, remember that we're talking about a divided nation. But the Lord, in his original plan, had wanted them to be one nation. He divided them because of their sin. But initially, they were one nation. They were still called to serve the Lord. The northern kingdom was still called to serve the Lord, even though they were a separate kingdom. But they had completely walked away from the Lord. The southern kingdom had more or less completely walked away from the Lord. And Hezekiah says, you know what? The Lord told us, as his people, to celebrate the Passover. It's the time, it's the festival where we come together and remember the deliverance of God in our lives. And so he sends out messengers to go as far north in Israel as they can and as far south in Judah as they can. He says, we are all the children of God. And so we are all going to come together to this Passover. This is not, we are not going to tribalize right now because we don't need to tribalize. We need to desperately seek the Lord. And they postpone it one month because things had gotten so bad under his father that they weren't ready ceremonially to have the, the feast. So they postpone it one month to give time for all the messengers to go around and to get the temple ready. And it says they sent them to Ephraim and Manasseh and Zebulun and Asher, and, uh, which are the different tribes of Israel. And then they have the Passover. They all come together and have the Passover. And Hezekiah offers his prayer. He says, hey, God, basically... None of us really know how to do this right. We're sort of winging it. Would you please be gracious with any oversights we make? And it says that the Lord accepts that. The Lord says, you know, because the people had forgotten. The, the nation had degraded to a point where the people did not know how to serve the Lord. And so Hezekiah has to pray for forgiveness and say, God, we're messing things up. I'm pretty positive. We're doing something wrong. Please have grace with us because we are trying to come from a place of desiring to do it right. And so the Lord has that grace. And what's interesting is it says here, as these couriers and these messengers go all throughout the land, that a lot of the tribes just completely laugh them off. So there's a lot of them scorned, but it says some of the men from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So most of the people turned down the offer, but a handful of them came. Right after this, during Hezekiah's reign as the king of Judah, the nation of Assyria comes in and wipes out the nation of Israel right after this. So Hezekiah is a man put in place by God, and he, and he extends this huge invitation. Hey, it's time to turn back to the Lord. And some of the, a large percentage just totally mock it, and a, a fraction of the people come, humble themselves, and turn back to seek the Lord, and then the judgment of God comes. And we see that all throughout history. There's always... You know, there's always the warnings of the Lord. The Lord will always give someone an opportunity to turn to him right up until the point of judgment. And so for each one of us, okay, we're not worried about the Assyrian army coming and conquering us, but we have a life that's highly unstable. Human life is, is pretty darn fragile. It only takes one drunk driver. It only takes one, you know, bad tire in a, in a bad road. It only takes one misunderstanding, and your life's over. So what are we doing about it? The invitation's being given right now. There may be another invitation if we choose not to accept it. 
we might have another opportunity to serve the Lord. We might have another opportunity to, to choose to turn our lives around, to choose to really live like it matters. But what if we don't? What if, just like for the nation of Israel, this was their last Passover before they were conquered? What if for us, this is our last opportunity? What if the Lord right now is saying to each one of us, hey, I'm inviting you to know me more. I'm inviting you to surrender your heart to me, to respond to what I'm offering. What are we going to do about it? Right? We can, we can laugh it off. We can say, nope, that's not us. It's not our thing. Or we can, as it says some of the people did, humble ourselves, turn, and seek the Lord. So the Lord raises up Hezekiah for that moment. Hezekiah does all this amazing stuff. In chapter 32, verse 1, uh, one of the most kind of encouraging verses of the Bible, it says, Now after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities. So Hezekiah does all this great stuff for the Lord. And the reward is that the king who just conquered all the nation of Israel comes against the nation of Judah and actually conquers most of the surrounding areas. He comes up to Jerusalem, really as something of sort of the last stand. And that's important, and it's, I think it's encouraging because oftentimes we get this backwards idea that, well, if I just serve the Lord, everything's easy or everything's going to be you know, smooth after we hit a certain point. No, Hezekiah serves the Lord as radically as just about any other person in the scriptures. And his reward is that he gets an enemy with a massive army coming against him who has a weakened army, who's already lost territory to other enemies. And so it feels backwards. But that's what the Lord is doing because the Lord is interested in a lot of things. The Lord's interested in dealing with the nation's sin, but the Lord's also interested in dealing with individuals. The Lord wants to do something in Hezekiah's heart. So after these acts of faithfulness on Hezekiah's part, the Lord allows a challenge to come against Hezekiah's life. And after we are faithful to the Lord, after we serve the Lord, after we do something hard or, or you know, obey the Lord, usually, or oftentimes, what happens is there's a challenge. And it's not because the Lord is being unfair. It's because the Lord is interested in perfecting us. The Lord is not interested in improving us. He's interested in totally transforming every aspect and every fiber of our being. And so Hezekiah does all this stuff. This king shows up. This king makes a fatal mistake. He taunts the Lord. He says, what God has been able to deliver any of the nations from my hand? And what makes you think your God is any different? Who's your God? And the Lord tells Hezekiah, step back. I'll take it from here. He wants to know what I'm like. I can demonstrate. He doesn't think I have any power. Well, I can show him. And it says that night that an angel of the Lord went down and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. We don't even get his name. An angel, angel number 72, went down and struck 185,000. And the Assyrian army is wiped out because the Lord says, this army has refused to believe in my name. I'm going to demonstrate to them who I am. The Lord takes his name very, very, very seriously. The only thing he takes more seriously than his name is his word. So the Lord establishes not only his faithfulness to Hezekiah, his power to the Assyrian army, his, you know, his deliverance to the nation of Judah. The Lord is showing who he is. And, and he's delivering because he's trying to do something. He's trying to show. He's trying to mold and shape and direct. And he's doing the same thing in all of our lives. When we have you know, the Assyrian army, so to speak, come against our lives, the Lord is still fully capable to deliver us from that. But he wants us to understand what he's 
you know, the why. Why is God allowing this, and then why is God delivering us from this? It's because he's interested in the work that he's doing in our hearts. So that's Hezekiah. Hezekiah, uh, there's more things we could talk about of his life, but Hezekiah eventually dies. It happens. Um, And he has a son named Manasseh. Manasseh is the most evil king in all of Judah's history. In, I think it's in 1 Kings, it says Manasseh made the streets of Jerusalem run with blood. And it says he rebuilt all the places that his father tore down. He erected altars for the Baals. He made ashram. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Um, He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He sacrificed his children. He practiced witchcraft. He practiced sorcery. Manasseh goes down as the most evil king in the nation of Judah's history. In verse 10 of chapter 33, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. We get a huge list of kings in the nation of Israel. We get a huge list of kings in the nation of Judah. In the nation of Judah, we get to watch a lot of kings who start out good and end bad. In the nation of Israel, we get to watch a lot of just bad kings. Manasseh is the only king who starts badly and ends well. He has the longest reign in the nation of Judah. He reigns, he reigns for 55 years. And most of it is completely devoted to evil. But the Lord judges him. The Lord lets him be carried off captive. And in his captivity, he humbles himself and cries out to the Lord. And the Lord hears and forgives him. The Lord brings him back and gives him final years. What's interesting is Manasseh's son reigns for two years. And we're told that he's evil. Manasseh's grandson becomes king when he's only eight years old. So you don't want to over-speculate, but there's a, there's a very strong likelihood that as Manasseh comes back and he's trying to you know, live a life of reform now that he's served the Lord, there's a point at which his son is too far gone for Manasseh to do anything about it. Manasseh says, you know what, I can't, I can't fix my son, but I can pour into my grandson. Manasseh dies when his grandson is six years old. His grandson is named Josiah. His grandson, Josiah, goes on to really hold the record as the most godly king of Judah. Josiah devotes his entire life to destroying pagan idols. And as it wasn't enough to do it in the nation of Judah, at this point, the nation of Israel has been captured by the Assyrians. Josiah doesn't care. He goes all the way through the nation of Israel. He just starts tearing down any altar he can find, smashing up any idol, um, desecrating any altar. He says, we are going to turn to the Lord as a nation because the Lord is our only hope. Josiah goes down as an amazing king. And in all likelihood, it's at least partially due to his grandfather pouring into him. And, you know, which is... You know, so we're, we're, we're looking at just so many different stages of life as we look at these kings, okay? Hezekiah celebrated the Passover, and the people had a warning from God, and, and that was the warning they got before the judgment of God came. Some of them took it, some of them didn't. Manasseh got judged by the Lord and then got a second chance. So, you know, all of us have blown it in some way or another. But the Lord gives Manasseh a chance at redemption. The Lord gives Manasseh the opportunity to do something with his final years. And Manasseh, in his lifetime, can't undo all the evil that he's done. His grandson undoes a whole lot of it. And so we're looking at 
just a godly king. It says Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, the molten images. Those are all just different names for the idols. He tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped them down. Also the ashram, the carved images, the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of their priests on the altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. And the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali and their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. And then he went back to Jerusalem and kept doing the same thing in the city of Jerusalem. Josiah goes down as a godly king. And, but here's the thing. And so as we're coming full circle, this is where we've been at in the book of Jeremiah on Sunday mornings. The nation, Josiah, is a man who's reformed. The nation doesn't reform. They put on like kind of a shadow reform while he's alive. As soon as he dies, most of the people just go back to what they were doing. And so the Lord still has to bring judgment against the nation of Judah. And so he allows, like we've been talking about on Sunday, the nation of Babylon to come in and conquer the nation of Judah. The nation of Babylon carries them away, but Jeremiah prophesies and says, you're going to be captives for 70 years, and then the Lord's going to bring you back. And as you're looking at the, the tail end of the book of Second Chronicles, and I promise we're really close to being done, in chapter 36, verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Cyrus comes into place as one of the, as one of the most powerful kings in all of world history. He conquers the Babylonian Empire, which up to that point had been the most powerful kingdom in all of world history. And Cyrus says, God has appointed me to be part of rebuilding this temple. And I have kingly obligations, so I can't necessarily go do it myself. But I'm commissioning any Israelite who wants to go back to the nation of Judah, go, and God bless you. And, but it says, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. Because we look at the word of God and we understand that God will always fulfill his word. And what's interesting even as we're looking you know, the scriptures give us a test for prophecies, for prophets. When a prophet comes to you, it says, and he gives you some sort of far-off prophecy, he had better be able to back it up with a short-term prophecy. And if he gives you a short-term prophecy and it comes true, then you're, you're justified in believing his long-term prophecy. If his short-term prophecy can't come true, you have no grounds for believing his long-term prophecy. And the Bible itself holds itself to that standard. The Bible gives us prophecies, some of which have been fulfilled and some of which haven't. The ones that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled with complete accuracy. Um, there's some that we look and we say there's a partial fulfillment and then there's a, there's a greater fulfillment coming. But the Bible does not ask us to accept it on faith alone. The Bible asks us to accept on faith and reason that the word of God is the word of God. And so it gives us examples like this. 
as we're wrapping up this book, to say, hey, by the way, the Lord spoke a prophecy and he fulfilled his word. And the Lord is speaking prophecies to our hearts today. The Lord is speaking things through his word. He fulfilled it to the nation of Judah. He is still fulfilling it and he is still going to fulfill it. So we trust and rest in the word of God as the source of absolute truth. We trust and rest in the word of God as the means of living our lives. The word of God doesn't just help us, you know, get through the spiritual side of life. It's meant to impact every aspect of our lives. This should impact our physical lives, our emotional lives, and our spiritual lives. The word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any sword. And it's piercing to the division of bone and marrow. It's, it is designed, it is breathed by God to cut into our hearts to challenge us and to force us to a response where we say, okay, this is either true or it's not. And if it's true, I have an obligation to respond to it. And it's true. It's true. It's the word of God. And so the book of 2 Chronicles is full of application for our hearts today. And next week, we're going to get in the book of Ezra. It's full of application. We're going to be doing this every Wednesday night for the rest of the year. And then we'll start something over again on Wednesday nights next year. But we're going to live like the Word of God is what we need for living this life. So Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you just for the power that's in it, the consistency. God, it was, it, you wrote it down over 1,500 years and it's completely accurate. It's completely connected. There's not a contradiction in it. We thank you for it, God. We pray that it would impact our hearts and our lives. That we would not read it, close it, and walk away, but that we would read it and be transformed. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our lives, that it, would, that it would reveal the truths of your word to us in a fresh way, in a powerful way. We pray that you would just have your way with us, guide us and lead us, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.